Amen. Last week, if you were with us, we saw this man in John chapter 9 who was blind from birth and he was healed. In that study, we, we learned about the purpose, the power, and the perplexity of the light. The purpose of the light was found in verse 3, chapter 9, verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We discovered the purpose of this man being blind was just that, that the works of God might be displayed in him. We took from that, God uses our suffering and he uses our trouble, used the man's blindness, to manifest or to display his work in the world. We also learned about the power of the light. The power of the light was found in the actual miracle, the miracle itself. Only an all-powerful God could give sight to the blind. We took from this that a powerful God is a trustworthy God. If our God has this kind of power, then, well, we can trust Him in any circumstance. Finally, we saw the perplexity of the light. This perplexity was demonstrated through the blind man's neighbors in verse 8. These had a hard time, these neighbors had a hard time accepting that the healed man was actually the blind man. They said in verse 9, no, but he is like him. He is like him. They were perplexed. They suspect some kind of trick had been pulled on them that he was replaced somehow, How? and this, this was in fact a different man. You remember the blind man, for his part, declared, verse 9, I am the man. It really is me. Now, when his neighbors asked him, how were your eyes opened? Well, he answered in verse 11, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Simple enough. This morning, I want to start with this phrase in this verse, although we studied it last week, this phrase, the man called Jesus. It's from this phrase that I'd like to talk about the course the light takes, which is the title of our message this morning, The Course the Light Takes. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that God's work in us, salvation, is at the same time an event and a process. Both are true. The event is simple, as we see it in the man who was blind. I went and I washed and I received my sight. Or in verse 25, I was blind and now I see. We might equate this to Jesus' new birth teaching in John 3.3, which we studied a long time ago. John 3.3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To be born, to receive sight, is a once-for-all-time event. This is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, he says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he did what? He made us alive together. By grace you have been saved. Salvation is a once-for-all-time event. Being able to see, being born again, being made alive. It's an event. But, however, salvation is more than that. Salvation is also a process. It's a journey. 
there are event elements and process elements. Consider this question. Did you know all that you did you know all that there was to know about Jesus when you first got saved? I see you shaking your heads no. Do you have to become a theologian before you can become a Christian? No. At least maybe not a very good theologian. I think a lot of us, uh, most of us maybe, got saved and we were probably bad theologians. Maybe we're still bad theologians, I don't know. Or, do you have to have your life together? Do you have to do something? No. It's certainly true that we must know something about Jesus that is true in order to be saved. In fact, we also have to do something. We have to know something and we have to do something. The Bible teaches that salvation is appropriated, salvation is given through repentance and faith. This is something we do. You remember Jesus after he was raised from the dead, the Emmaus Road, he was speaking to his disciples there, and it says he opened their minds, this is Luke 24, 45 through 47, he opened their minds, the disciples, to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance... It's an action we have to do. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In Acts 20, when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders there, he says, I, Paul, did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul preached repentance and faith. He continues in writing to the Romans in Romans 10, 8 through 10, memorable verse here. But what does it say, Paul says? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess, you have to speak, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Finally, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is Jesus here. And Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus himself preached repentance and faith. While the Bible clearly calls us to repent and believe, these are what initiate that salvation event that event component of salvation, Jesus also said in John 3, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Can you see the wind? There's a mystery there. God is at the same time calling us to believe something, but He's also working to change something. What I think we find in the story of the blind man is the way, maybe a way, you might say, in which these two work together, the event element and the process element. God opens our eyes, and we enter into the course the light takes a course that involves a growing perception of who Jesus is. And this is our big idea this morning. I put it this way. Four declarations 
reveal a growing perception of who Jesus is, and I've added a purpose statement, so that we might see Jesus in the highest place. This is where we're going this morning. We'll spend most of our time looking at verses 13 through 34. Those are the kind of the new verses this morning, but I actually want to read a little bit before that and a little bit after that this morning. And so I'm going to read John 9 verses 1 through 38 this morning. If you would please stand and we'll read this as a church, John 9, 1 through 38. As he passed by, a man, excuse me, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. John adds, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. Verse 24, So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, he answered. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and as he who, who is speaking to you, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you for the long reading. I appreciate your strength. I've already tipped you off to the first declaration. It's found in verse 11. The man called Jesus. This is our first declaration in, chapter, in verse 11. From this verse, we, we don't have any impression that the, bl- the, blind, the blind man knew much of anything about Jesus. He certainly wouldn't have been able to recognize him. He couldn't see, and as far as we know, Jesus didn't come back to introduce himself. If we were to ask the blind man, what do you know about Jesus at this point? What would he say? Likely, he would say, well, I don't know anything about this man except that he gave me sight. That I know. The blind man had no theological language. What he had was an experience. He wasn't able to articulate adequately adequately who Jesus was, but he could give witness to what happened, dare I say, to his soul. Furthermore, the man didn't need to be a theologian to experience the benefits offered from Christ. His mind might have been weak, but his heart was brimming. He could see. We should mention something about the experience of the blind in biblical times. Blindness is a common malady that's found in the Bible. It's likely associated with what today we call trachoma. Trachoma is an infection trans- transmitted by poor hygiene and especially by flies. While such an infection is curable today, it wasn't in Jesus' day. Now, the man in John 9 here is born blind, so he probably has some other kind of disease or disorder. Uh, There is a disease, a common disease, that caused blindness in Jesus' day. Ophthalmia, something like that it's called. Uh, It sets in just days after birth, and it's aggravated by sand and the sun. The sun's glare Uh, penetrates the unprotected inflamed eyes and blindness is caused as the result. These cases are beyond repair. Uh, Only the miraculous would heal a man who had this disease. To be blind in Jesus' day was to be perceived as incapable and highly vulnerable. In the strongest terms, this man's life really was a hopeless tragedy, unfortunately. This wasn't our world of protection, of charitable assistance, of seeing eye dogs and braille books. This man sat along the road and he begged. He was a beggar. He had no hope of marriage, no hope of employment. He had no social honor. He was at the very bottom of the social ladder and there was no social net to catch him. He was a nobody. The blind are those who 
walk in darkness. And we know Jesus has talked to us already about those who walk in darkness. Jesus said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, chapter 8, verse 12, but will have the light of life. This man's desperate and dark condition is a fitting picture of spiritual blindness. To say this man's life was changed once he was introduced to Jesus is a massive understatement. His life had done more than change. You might say his life had begun. And such a beginning came with questions, questions that might not be answered by his neighbors, questions that might not be answered by him, but questions maybe that could be answered by, well, the religious leaders of the day. So let's go to the Pharisees and find out what they think. At least that's what the neighbors did. And so in verse 13, it says, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. They would know what to do. They would have an explanation. In the verses that follow, the healed man is interrogated as if he's done something wrong. And while his inquisitors hoped to justify themselves, the healed man proves their position is unjustified, as we've just read. In the end, the healed man exposes their blindness, but as we'll see, their antagonism reveals a growing perception in the man's life regarding who Jesus is. Although John doesn't tell us that Jesus did this miracle on the Sabbath, the Pharisees don't seem to linger. Or he tells us, excuse me, that Jesus did perform this miracle on the Sabbath. The Jews don't seem to linger there long. That doesn't seem to be the main issue that they have. They had already addressed Jesus' healing on the Sabbath in John 5. You remember that when Jesus healed the paralyzed man. That was the main point in John 5. Here, they only mention it briefly, and they seem to be more, more determined to find out what this healed man thinks about Jesus. And so the focus becomes not that he healed on the Sabbath, but this actual man and what he thinks happened to him. Who is Jesus? Verse 15 tells us the Pharisees again asked him, the way this is written, it's as if the reader kind of steps into the middle of an ongoing conversation. Even the verb form uh, gives us that impression. It's like the curtain opens and there's already a debate going on. These men are already interacting with one another. We're right in the middle, you might say, of an ongoing cross-examination. Interestingly, as it turns out, the Pharisees were themselves divided about Jesus. Apparently, the Pharisees were just as perplexed as the neighbors Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. There was a kind of schism that resulted. It's from this place of perplexity, again, that they ask the man what he thinks of Jesus. And his answer gives us a second declaration that reveals a growing perception of who Jesus is. The healed man says in verse 17, he is a prophet. He is a prophet. For some reason, the healed man's understanding of who Jesus is has grown. Jesus was at first a man, and now he is a prophet. We know that to call Jesus a prophet is really to say too little about Jesus but you have to admit it's a step in the right direction. We have to remember this man's contact with Jesus was very brief. At this point, what more could he say about Jesus? It's likely 
that to call Jesus a prophet was probably the highest possible thing he could say about Jesus. Leon Morris said his answer puts Jesus in the highest place he knew. What the healed man knew was that a mighty work had happened in his life. He was blind, and now he could see. And the agent of such work was an extraordinary person. He was a prophet. The phrase reveals that while the man can see, I would argue he's beginning to see with more clarity. Maybe 2040 vision is moving to 2030 vision. Verses 18 through 23, the Inquisition spills over onto the man's parents, as we just read. In fact, the Pharisees didn't even believe that the man was born blind until they speak to his parents. They're skeptics. They want to know who this man was and was he really blind from birth. It's possible the neighbors might have been mistaken his identity and brought a different man to them. And so they call in the parents because certainly the parents won't be fooled. They'll know who the man is. They would be able to testify to this. And so they ask the parents. The parents readily confirm that, in fact, the man is their son and that he was, in fact, blind from birth. But how he sees, well that they're not going to explain. They're not going to speak to that. John tells us why they wouldn't speak to that in verses 22 and 23. In this parenthetical statement, it says, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. This reveals the, the autocratic, the domineering a leadership of the Pharisees, the weapons that they wielded was, or the weapon they wielded was excommunication. To be put out of the synagogue in Jesus' day wouldn't, wouldn't have been something to take lightly. The synagogue was the center of the Jewish community. To be excommunicated from the synagogue was well, a terrible thing. It meant you were cut off from everything, even the privileges of buying and selling goods in the community. It meant you were excluded from religious life, you were, therefore, a total outcast. You were even an outcast at death as funerals were not given for those excommunicated. Interestingly, and fortunate for the Pharisees, the fact that the parents don't testify to or speak to who actually did this and how the man was healed really reveals the truth of the matter because they knew that the only explanation was that Jesus healed the man. And so that puts them in a trap because they would then open themselves up to this criticism that they would have to con confess that Jesus is in fact the Christ. So this is, this is actually working against the Pharisees. Again, that they, that they say nothing proves the fact that Jesus was in fact the Christ and that he actually did the miracle. Having confirmed that the healed man was blind from birth, the Pharisees call him for it a second time. So they want to speak to the man again. This time, however, they begin with a veiled threat. It says, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. It's a tactic. It's a heavy-handed exhortation. The Pharisees, in a sense, kind of swear him in. Something like saying, remember that God sees you. And the fact that they add, we know that this man is a sinner, is really pushing him in their direction. We're supposed to be the leaders. We know who this man is. 
So give glory to God by affirming our position. We know he's a sinner. What do you say? To answer in the negative is to break free from the tyrannical leadership of the religious and risk excommunication. That could be the result, the consequence. The healed man's spirited response is more than memorable. Verse 25, he says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. It's hard to shake a man who says, one thing I know. What can you say? The man was blind and now he can see. What's there to argue? Pharisees respond in verse 26. How did he do it? How did he do? Uh, what did he do to you? Excuse me. How did he open your eyes? To which the healed man shoots back, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And we love this line. Do you also want to become his disciples? Of course, this re- response infuriates the Pharisees. They're infuriated, and so they go on the attack. In verse 28, they reviled him. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Remember, multiple times they've talked about where he came from. They've been skeptics about where he came from. They didn't know who his father was, where, his, where, he, where he was born. And so again, they're attacking this. We know about Moses, but we don't know where this man comes from. Previously, they claimed Abraham as their father, and here they're claiming Moses as their mentor. They're disciples of Moses. They know that God spoke to Moses face to face. Moses gave them the law. But they don't know where this man, Jesus, comes from. Although the man might have been blind, he was blind, he was no fool. And realizing at this point that the investigation has really turned in his favor, he takes control of the debate. And so he says in verse 30, why this is an amazing thing. Of course, remember, they're the ones that are supposed to know who comes from God. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. That's what the law says. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. They excommunicated him. With this phrase, this man's perception has grown again. Really, I'm speaking about verse 33 here. Jesus was a man, he was a prophet, and now he argues quite convincingly that Jesus is from God. He says it in the negative in verse 33 there. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The chain of reasoning is unbroken. Jesus could not possibly have done such a thing, a thing that was unparalleled in all of history unless he were in fact from God. They're trying to to push him in a corner and the whole time this man's understanding and perception of who Jesus is is growing and growing and growing. The statement from the healed man comes at a cost. They don't even, they're not even concerned with the reality that Jesus might actually be from God. And so they focus on the man and they revile him. 
They cast him out. They excommunicated him. The consequences that were so feared by the man's parents, those consequences fall upon the blind man, and now he's the one pushed out of the community. Part of the story reminds us that a growing perception of who Jesus is comes at a cost. As the realities of who Jesus is shine into our lives with greater clarity, they reflect back out into the world with an equal clarity. And that clarity is oftentimes not welcomed by the world. Remember John 3, 19 and 20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness, it says, rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. We really see that lived out in the blind man and his experience. As it turns out, this blind man, this beggar, is a a very courageous man. In the face of the strongest religious and and social opposition of his day, he stands his ground. His uh, valiantly, or he valiantly holds to what he cannot deny. The once blind beggar is the first person, in fact, to be put out of the synagogue to suffer this kind of persecution from the state recorded in Scripture. Part of the story is important because it reminds us that following Jesus comes at a cost. Social isolation, punishment, even martyrdom all a result of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, up through verse 34, we've seen this once blind man grow in his perception of who Jesus is. In verse 10, as we began, he's just a man. Verse 17, Jesus is a prophet. In verse 33, he is from God. This growing perception costs the man nearly everything he might have gained by being able to see. Whatever, whatever he was looking forward to, participation in Jewish community life, he only had for, I don't know how long it was, a day, and it was all taken from him. He was a social outcast before, and he was a social outcast after. Now, in a couple of weeks, we'll discover that Jesus is a good shepherd, and a good shepherd goes after his, after his sheep which is exactly what Jesus does in verses 35 through 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, that they had excommunicated him, verse 35. In fact, having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The man's faith and his growing perception of Jesus comes to a climax here. Finally, he sees Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of Man. He worships Him. Here we see, of course, John, the gospel writer, achieving his goals. You remember again his purpose statement. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. When asked, Jesus identified Himself as the Son of Man, and the man believes and was saved. While the man was given physical sight, spiritual sight was confirmed when the man heard and believed. Having heard and believed, what did he do? 
He worshiped. He worshiped the Savior. So we have four declarations that reveal a growing perception of who Jesus is. As I've explained and interpreted this story this morning, I've taken the approach that this man is really a model of an ideal convert in some ways. He's healed, he's persecuted, he believes, and in the end, he becomes a disciple. He worships Jesus. And along this process, the man's spiritual perception grows. As the man moves forward, his spiritual sight progresses. You might say his, the eyes of his faith develop from 2040 to 2030 to 2020 and eventually to 2010. He can see Jesus for exactly who he is. Speaking of spiritual sight, I'd like to just say a couple things about this theme of spiritual sight. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding, that's a seeing word, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We see the glory of God. This verse is teaching us that one of the ways God changes us is through sight, the eyes of faith. As we behold, as we look into who all, all that God is, His glory reflects back at us, which is really kind of what that idea of beholding the glory of God is. As we behold His glory, as we look into it, it reflects back at us, and we're changed by that. From one image, it says, to another, one degree of glory to another. Hebrews 12.2 calls us to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking, says, to Jesus. So we're able to, to put away sin by looking at Jesus, who is, Hebrews 12.2 says, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You remember Hebrews 11 tells us that Moses was looking to the reward and that he saw him who is invisible with the eyes of faith. He had spiritual sight. He could see. Paul even uses spiritual sight to comfort the afflicted. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, Paul says, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Spiritual sight. John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, he writes in his first epistle, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because, Paul, John says, we shall see Him as He is. We shall finally see Him in all His glory. The growing perception of who Jesus is reaches a climax in heaven. We'll finally be perfected in the image of Christ and we'll be able to fully gaze into the glory of God and of the glory of Christ. I see you shaking your head. All of this is in line with the exhortation from 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Having been healed, the further the blind man walked, the more he understood who Jesus was. And the longer, I would argue, you walk with Jesus, 
The longer I walk with Jesus, the better I'll be able to understand, the better we will be able to understand who Jesus is. As we move to close this morning, I want to ask us to consider two things or have you consider two things. The first is what I'm calling the danger of sight. The danger of sight. Up to this point, we've said nothing negative about seeing. There's nothing here in this text that is negative about seeing. There's nothing negative to be found here. That being said, I do think there's a caution against or that we should caution ourselves against a self-serving attitude of sight. And what do I mean by that? A self-serving attitude of sight happens when we elevate our sight above others without regard for our own flaws. We see sin in the world. We see problems in the world. We see all the ethical answers because we have them. We see all the ways that people around us need to change because we've been given spiritual sight. We have the spiritual insight to know what's best. The problem here is that we're using our spiritual sight to gaze outwardly and we failed to keep our own hearts in view. The most simple way I know to illustrate this is like driving a car and looking in the rearview mirror. We have to look forward, but the only way to effectively look forward is to keep your eyes on the rearview mirror. Well, so it is as we walk with the Lord. If we're going to effectively move forward and we're going to effectively gaze into all that Christ is, we always have to be mindful of what He's done in our lives. There's a sense in which we're looking back to recognize, look what I've been saved from. It's not a perfect illustration, but something to think about. Say it this way, the grounds for spiritual sight is the awareness of how darkened our hearts were and how desperately, moment by moment, we need to fix our eyes upon Jesus. You could put it in the way of of having a log in your own eye. We're there to pull the splinter out of another's eye, but we have a log in our own eye. We forget that we're frail. We can never move too far away from Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have to remember that we have nothing within ourselves to commend to God. We have to remember that it's the blind beggars who keep on seeing. Kent Hughes tells the story of Alexander White. He was a preacher. He was in a study one day when a friend came in to tell him about an evangelist who had come to Edinburgh and was criticizing the local ministers. The man told Dr. White that the preacher had said, Dr. Hood Wilson was not a Christian. Well, when White heard that, he leapt out of his chair and said, The rascal! Dr. Wilson, not a converted man? And his friend said, And that's not all. He said, You are not converted either. At that, White stopped short. He sat back down in his chair and he put his face in his hands. After a long silence, he said, Leave me, friend, leave me. I must examine my heart. Kent adds, he was poor in spirit. I suppose what I'm saying is that the way of seeing is the way of the blind. I know it's a paradox. Spurgeon said, it is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ, it is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ, it is our supposed light that holds back his hand. Blessed 
of the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have to be mindful of the danger of sight, and we have to say the highest thing, which is my final point, say the highest thing. What is the highest thing that you can say about Jesus? To the person who thinks Jesus is a myth, or was a myth, can you say he was a man? To the person that says he's a man, can that person say he was a prophet? To the person who says he's a prophet, can you say he's from God? To the person who says he's from God, can you say he was the son of God? He was the son of man. What do you say about Jesus? I hope that all of us can say he is the son of God. That being said, the course the light takes in the blind man's life, we see that course. And in each moment, in each possible moment, the man says the highest thing that he can say about Jesus. I believe this is true in our lives as well. As our perception grows, our perception changes. And the more insight we have, greater awareness. We grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember our big idea this morning. Four declarations reveal a growing perception of who Jesus is. And then I gave you this purpose statement. So that we might see Jesus in the highest place. That's our goal to see Jesus in the highest place. Well, what do you know to be true about Jesus? What do you know to be true that you're holding your, yourself back from? Is there any, anything about our Savior that you haven't fully embraced? And if there's something le- left there, then you're not saying the highest thing that you can say about Him. Is there a gap between what you know to be true and what, you're, what you actually believe or you're saying about Jesus? Can you say that he is your advocate and your author? Can you call him your beloved? Is he your captain, your commander, your cornerstone? Is he your fountain? Is he your master, your mediator, your messiah? your ransom, your redeemer, your refiner, that's a hard one, your rock, your rod, is he your righteousness? What's the highest thing you know to be true about Jesus that you've yet to embrace? Is there any space, any notch, is there a rung on the ladder left for you to place him there? As I was studying this, I was thinking about my own heart. What is the highest thing that I can say about Jesus? And I thought to myself, what is the highest thing the Bible says about Jesus? And where does it say it? So I thought about the book of Revelation. I thought, maybe that's where it is. The book of Revelation. So, I turned to the book of Revelation Revelation chapter 1. 
started there in the opening chapter there's a description of Jesus thinking about the highest thing you could say about Jesus well here could be maybe the highest description of Jesus Revelation chapter 1 verse 12 remember John the same guy who wrote the gospel of John is receiving this vision then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Wow, what a description. When I saw him, John says, what else can he do? I fell at his feet as though dead. He saw Jesus in all that he, in the highest possible sense, and all he can do is bow, fall down dead. But this isn't where I ended. I, th- I thought, there's got to be more. This is my answer. Revelation 5. This is my answer to the highest thing the, the Bible says about Jesus. Chapter, we're given a picture of that future moment that all Christians and all of creation is waiting for. This is the moment in history, in human history, where Jesus takes back what's rightfully his. You know that thing we call creation? You know that thing that has no end? It goes on forever and ever and ever? That thing? Jesus will stand above that and judge it. He will call it to account. Revelation 5 then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the, front, on the throne, the Father, a scroll written within on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. We've disqualified everyone. No one can open that scroll. And one of the elders said to me, excuse me, verse 4, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. There's no one, if no one can open that scroll, then evil will prosper. No one can save us. No No one can redeem this. No one can bring this to an end. There's no hope without someone that can open that scroll. One of the elders said to me, verse 5, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain.
seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll. Who can do that? He took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people. That's us. Ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people of the nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. That's us. Made us a kingdom of priests to our God. And they, that's us, shall reign on the earth. He's not done. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. All of creation, all that's out there that we can't see. All those angels. Thousands and thousands. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's the highest thing I, I think the Bible says about Jesus. If you can find something higher, please let me know. If your Jesus is anything less than this one, he's not in the highest place in your heart. If history can say of the blind man, he put Jesus in the highest place, well, what will history say of this pulpit? What will history say of those pews? What will history say of this building? My commitment is to try to put Jesus in the highest possible place. Wow, the Lord has put me here. I hope you'll come with me. What will history say of you? Have you put Jesus in the highest place? This is the course the light takes. Amen?